everyone, Kevin Rose here. Welcome to another episode of 100 Proof. I'm, of course, joined by Derek Edwards. Derek, good to see you. What's going on, dude? It's Casual Friday over here. It's Casual Friday. We don't have a guest this week. We decided to just like kind of hang. No guests. We're just going to kind of rip, uh, riff off the top, which should uh, lead to some fun stuff. We have no idea where we're going with this one, but uh, it'll be fun to kind of go back and forth on a, on a couple of like the most recent topics that have been yeah, popping we, up over the last couple of days. We, we had a couple of guests, potential guests lined up. One, uh, I want to have DC Investor back on. He's, gonna, he's down to do it. Uh, he had some, uh, I won't go into a lot of details, but some house construction stuff going on. So he couldn't pull that off. Um, and, and yeah, we'll, we'll be back with a regular guest, but this is gonna be fun. Just you and I riffing for a bit. I love it. Let's go, dude. Let's go. Where do you want, where do you want to start? Uh, let's start with, uh, magic Eden. This is kind of a little bit of an update on, on some of the stuff we've been chatting about. Um, so for those of you that don't know, uh, you know, magic Eden, if you're in Solana, it's a household name. It is the marketplace to go to, to buy Solana NFTs. They are slowly expanding into, you know, ETH-based NFTs, and they've got a huge, massive roadmap. Many, I've met with the team, was very impressed. Uh, many people that I speak with say that this is one of the best teams in the industry in terms of just relentless execution and iteration um, in terms of their building powers, um, which, is, which is great. I've heard that from many people now. And they are always trying to push the boundaries of things and uh, definitely did so yesterday where they launched this new NFT royalty enforcement tool, which um, is called MetaShield. So it is aimed at deterring NFT buyers who bypass creator royalties. And we should say that, you know, we've talked about this a bit, but there have been uh, these platforms now that, well, I guess stepping back, obviously a big promise of Web3 as applied to NFTs and to artists specifically was this idea that you could bake in ongoing royalties forever into digital art. And this was a very, it's a, it's a fantastic idea because so many times the artists at the end of the day, at least in trad art, traditional art, are the ones that have been screwed over, meaning that they'll sell their artworks for, for next to nothing. They blow up, they're resold a thousand times over for, you know, if they really blow up for hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars later, and they don't see any of that upside, right? So the idea, and we've already seen this play out with art blocks artists and some great one of one artists, are that as the artwork is sold over time, some percentage of that NFT comes back, or the royalty comes back to the actual original artist, and they get paid for it, which I think is great because in in practice, I have seen a lot of these artists that have said, "Hey, I'm going to pay this forward," and they either pay it forward to charities. Art blocks is really good at this. So many of their artists, uh, you know, take a percentage of the overall mint and pay it directly to charities from the get go. Or they say, I'm going to like empower up and coming artists, right? And I'm going to go buy additional art. And it's like really funding this new, this new whole movement, which is, is, is great to see. Um, anything to add on there at all, Derek? You nailed it. I think you set the table perfectly. Okay. So some new tools out there that essentially bypass this and, and they still allow you to buy the art you just don't pay the artist, right? Like, so you, you bypass that and you keep that for yourself or it's a little bit of a discount off the price, right? And so that has happened and popped up a lot lately. And for either PFP projects or basically any project out there that relies upon secondary royalties to survive, either to for the artists themselves or to hire staff or whatever they're building, 
uh, is scratching their head a little bit and say, huh, well, if this trend continues, I'm a little bit screwed here because I had already made plans to use some of these secondary royalties um, to actually fund my projects and things going forward, right? So, 100%. The, yeah, so you've got... Now, this is all the beautiful thing about the blockchain is it's all programmable, right? So you've got coders going against coders. So you've got coders saying, well, guess what? I can bypass your royalties. And then you have other coders coming in and saying, well, guess what? We can write other additional code that makes that even harder. And the way I first heard about this is some of the artists coming to the table and saying, and I've actually, I've had these conversations with a couple of artists uh, directly uh, to prove, is that is there a way that you all, meaning talking to proof, could build some tools for us as artists to track if this is happening. And it's not to penalize, at least the initial thinking was not to penalize the users that are buying on these second, these markets that bypass the royalties, but it's so that we have a good list of users that are actually the ones that are paying the royalties that we can provide more value to. And I thought this was a great idea, right? Like it's saying, okay, Let's just, uh, uh, you can insert any artist here. I'm X copy. I'm putting out all these NFTs. 95% of my audience or call it 80% or whatever it may be is doing this the way that is paying me back royalties. Now I have that list of that 80%. And my next drop is going to those people that were doing things the right way. Um, as the way that I originally intended. I think that's a great approach, right? It's, it's, it's like giving some back to those people that, that, honored that initial commitment, that, that idea that artists would receive ongoing royalties. Um, so Magic Eden said, well, let's take it one step further. Let's make this meta shield and we'll actually give these creators the way to go in and detect and then, you know, quote, unquote, well, this is what some people are saying on Twitter, quote unquote, punish uh, people that are bypassing these royalties by doing things like uh, flagging and blurring the NFTs that have been sold um, that managed to bypass these creator royalties. So actually taking the NFTs and imagine one day, like you're out there and you're like, hey, I'm going to save a little 5% or whatever. And you like pick up this, 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 uh, this NFT, you wake up the next morning and your NFT is blurred out. Like that's, that's next level. Like, you know, that, that's a little bit more aggressive than we've seen in the past. Definitely more aggressive. So, Gosh, there's a, a lot of ways we can take this conversation. I think where I first, the first thing I always think about is I believe all of this stuff deserves to exist because I think the more tools that creators have to create collections that are in the spirit of what they're trying to do or who, who they're trying to point it to or what they're trying to say in the space, the more tools that allow for like these diverse approaches to building community and dropping collections, the better off for the space long run. I mean, you see more experimentation in the Petri dish, mm -hmm. you'll see more types of outcomes. And so it's good when we have these different types of tools that exist for creators, the original minters of these projects, whether it's gaming or art or collectibles or PFPs or whatever it may be, we have more tools, we'll see more types of outcomes, which is net positive for the space long run. So that's the first thing that I kind of always think about. The second thing I always think about is the, the reason why a lot of this stuff is so powerful is for the first time ever, we can have digital objects with property rights baked into them uh, that are also bearer. Like we've never had the ability for all of the ownership of a digital asset to be, um, to be born and to be held by whoever possesses that digital object. It's a very interesting dynamic that has never happened before in human history. And I think up until this point, the idea that someone could own a digital object and do whatever they want with that digital object was fairly well understood. 
we're now reaching this interesting point in time where there's been some pushback on the royalty model and the way to, you know, to, um, you know, bring this conversation to light is like you said, Kevin, these owners of these digital objects to take these, you know, objects to marketplaces that may not respect the royalties that the original creators have set out. And so there's this weird game theory that's kind of playing out around this idea of sovereign ownership and non-sovereign ownership now that Magic Eden has thrown their hat into the ring by saying, well, yes, these are digital bearer assets. Yes, you totally own the property rights to this thing. But now we want to introduce a wrinkle where the creator can retroactively, after you own this thing, edit or modify your ownership over this digital object. Now, these things are very much attention because we just haven't seen that type of dynamic play out. Um, in a space mm -hmm. where everything is about the fact that we have sovereign ownership over these assets. Now, I do think this experimentation is worthwhile, and it does offer some creatives the ability to go in and use this standard. I think they call it the MetaShield standard, if that's how they want to build their community, and some collectors may flock to it. Um, but I can also see the point of view of why this is net negative for this idea of sovereign ownership over digital objects. So I kind of vacillate between these two things because I think they compete against each other. I think um, net net, I believe all of this stuff deserves to exist and we should be having really, um, we should be having these difficult conversations about how the industry feels uh, or how creators feel or, or how we can kind of move this, this whole space to a point where different outcomes are, are created for different creators. This doesn't feel like the right solution to me. Like there's something about if your point about like when an NFT and, and this gets back to this idea, whether it's immutable or mutable technology, right? Like yes. there's, there's something that, that, that's, that I've always thought about. And, and I guess the majority of people probably think about NFTs is that they're locked, right? Mm. They probably think when I receive an NFT, that's locked. It's, it's the, the graphic is there. That, that is what it is. It's on the blockchain. No one can touch it. It's in my wallet. It can't be pulled back out. And yes. a lot of that is true, except for the fact that until the artist surrenders the rights to modify the metadata on that NFT, that image can be updated and it can be swapped. Right. Right. And so what you're saying here is that at some point later in time, and I, I, I get that there's, there's actually probably use cases of this that are really interesting where you do want to be able to swap those images, right? Like, let's say, for example, I mean, DECA is a great example. The DECA this created is a great a, example. Yes. Yeah. So, so they created a, a gallery and you receive this NFT from DECA. And the more you contribute to the ecosystem, the more you do, the better your NFT becomes. So this wouldn't be possible unless you could modify and change that NFT over time, right? So that's a very positive thing for that NFT to yes. mature and go through. Now... Blurring out someone's NFT because you skipped a royalty somewhere just seems like, well, actually, we, why don't we talk about this? Because you mentioned it before we actually went on on the air here and started recording. But there's ways that people could buy these and not know it, right? And skip the royalties. Mm. Like, can you yes. expand on that a bit? Yeah. So an example would be like, um, and I don't want to throw names into the ring here. I, I more just want to uh, articulate. I, I recognize what Magic Eden is trying to do is less so is less about... Um, punishing these buyers unknowingly and more about um, articulating to the space that this type of outcome is possible if we start moving in. It's a preventative approach, right? Um, the problem, I think, is that when you cast a net that wide where the creator has the ability to retroactively modify an NFT um, after it is engaged in a sale that doesn't respect royalties, 
um, uh, you know, you, the, presumably the buyer would know not to go to that exchange and buy from that exchange, knowing that royalties aren't being enforced. But we're now moving into a world where aggregators are aggregating listings from all sorts of marketplaces. So if I go to, you know, genie.xyz or gem.xyz, which are aggregators that aggregate uh, these contracts from different um, listings on different protocols, you know, there there are some um, protocols that they're bringing into their aggregation that don't respect those royalties. And I, as a buyer on one of these aggregators, may not actually know that I'm buying from one of these 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 places when I buy on an aggregator. And so there are some competing effects here when you cast a net this wide um, that are important to think about. Now, I don't know what the aggregator situation is on Solana today, but I do know on Ethereum um, that there are certainly aggregators that exist that are sweeping in these marketplaces and buyers may not be knowingly buying um, from some of these marketplaces when they do those sweeps. Right, right. That's the danger of this whole thing is you could you could legitimately buy an NFT thinking that you're buying it just in getting the best price. Yep. But in reality, it's it's you're buying from one of those marketplaces. It, it's challenging. It's, it's really challenging in that I, I do like this idea that it's not about retroactively going back and penalizing people. But moving forward, if you're an artist or you're a brand, you only reward those that have played by the rules or you try to. Right. And I think yes. that's. That's interesting. The other thing, too, that many people may not notice, and maybe this is, well, I think it applies to everyone, is that, like, we see this all the time even happening with, you know, Moonbirds-related NFTs. Like, people are selling them on these marketplaces that don't don't have fees. And, like, that's, it's happening. And so every time that happens, that is just that much less revenue for that company that you hope is going to go do great things and build a bigger brand, bring more attention to the brand, bring more clout, more potential owners of the art to the brand. You're giving mm-hmm. them less capital to go and run and do with. And, and in our example down the road, when we enact the, the and kick off the Dow um, in, in a few months, a percentage of those royalties are going to go to the Dow for the community back for the community to do amazing things. Right. They so will be incentivized it's like, to keep things in house and have those royalties you would protected. Think, right. But some people just won't. Right. It's true. So it's tragedy of the commons type stuff. Yeah. So, so it's, you it's know, definitely fun to watch. Yeah. So there's actually something that you, uh, you mentioned Kevin that I love, um, which is, and, and I feel like you and I are now coming to like a thesis around this. But it's not the fact that these NFTs can be edited that it's that is the problem. Because I actually think your example of deck is a great one. Creators should have the ability to update or modify. Like there is use cases that exist. This one is around you know loyalty, like a loyalty program that essentially provides you a better and better NFT the more you interact with a protocol or a platform. Like that's mm-hmm. interesting stuff that should exist even if it means the creator is modifying and editing and has editing rights to an NFT over time. I think the problem that we're both landing on is um, this one around creator intent and um, mismanagement of expectations around that creator intent. And I think um, the, I guess where I net out on this is the more options, the, the better, um, mostly because like we want creators to find different buckets that they can play in over time. Uh, so all of this stuff should be interesting and deserve to exist, even if MetaShield, as an example, may not be the right approach for 99% of creators, 95% mm-hmm. of creators, 90% of creators. Um, so I don't know how you feel about that, but I think that's kind of where I'm, um, where I'm kind of uh, netting out here, feeling my way through the dark. Yeah, I mean, 
I think it's it's too early. I had somebody ask this on our live town hall on Moonbirds today, where they said, "If royalties are going away, how are you all going to survive? What are you going to do? Give us a plan." And my response was that I feel very fortunate in that we're well capitalized and we don't have to really worry about that at this particular moment in time. Mm. Um, not to say it's not on our radar, but I, I think the community is going to push back on both sides and eventually net out at something that makes sense. Um, yes. I don't know if that'll be lower royalties or, or what will happen there, but there will be some balance. Like if, if you're well-equipped and can code to avoid the royalties, you're, you're equally well-equipped and can code to enforce them, right? Yes. So there's, there's always going to be a way to fight back against this stuff. And so I don't think it's over. I don't think it, we're, we've gone to a world of forever zero royalties. Like there will just be that airline rewards program that you know a lot of people will say there's going to be a ton of value here if I continue to pay royalties as this stuff happens mm. because you know it's that's that's where the additional long term value will probably come in is how many other great things I get to participate in yes um, you know so we'll see it's fun think, fun uh, to watch I think Moonbirds and Proof folks are going to be blown away by uh, by the stuff you're doing back there by the way I don't know how much of uh, how much of the stuff you've you've talked about in some of these sessions with the community but I think they'll be uh, quite quite surprised and super pumped about the stuff you guys are building back there it's going to be fun yeah absolutely. Um, cool. Well, let's move on to the next story. You had, uh, you know, one that you brought to my attention that I've just been out of the, the loop on, but the $70 million in art from MoMA being sold. Can, can you tell us about that? Yeah, this is pretty cool. So Wall Street Journal reported this week uh, that the uh, New York Museum of Modern Art is auctioning off about $70 million worth of their collection, um, including some Picassos, in order to expand the museum's digital footprint, um, which is you know, there, if we think about what is actually the consumable, ownable digital stuff that exists, it's really stuff that's being built and created on these ledgers, uh, this NFTs, for lack of a better word. And while they didn't explicitly say that they're going out to buy NFTs, these are the obvious consumables for anyone, any museum that's looking to expand their digital footprint of ownable assets. Um, I think what's really it's crazy. Cool, it's crazy. I mean, it, uh, I think it was G Money or a few others had this tweet that th this news they expected to happen 20 years from now. And it's happening, you know, 12, 24 months after this industry has really started to take off. I think what was really cool about this wall street journal article, and I would, I would just recommend that everyone uh, takes a, takes a minute to Google it and read it. Cause it's very interesting. They mentioned that um, last fiscal year, their attendance for the museum topped out at 1.65 million visitors. Um, and he hoped that foot traffic would return to pre-pandemic levels, but this was down. The museum typically sees about 3 million visitors a year. Uh, on the opposite end of the spectrum, he said that their online content on their website, um, and as well as their social media following, has just been jumping. They're up to 35 million people, up from 30 million before the pandemic. And so these trends are staring, you know, these legacy institutions right as in the they face. Should as they should. And so um, it's been fascinating to watch the evolution here and of thinking around some of our most storied institutions. Yeah, you know, I, this is fun. This is cool. This is really, really uh, important news because it, it's basically saying if you're MoMA, you're sitting on a shit ton of assets, right? And you, you have all these, these pieces of work and the, and the artwork and they're worth a, sh you know, just yes. whatever it may be in the trillions, whatever they have that they have an insane collection, right? Um, 
let's just say you're 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 like okay we need to expand we 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 need more capital um in some sense the conversation you have to imagine behind the scenes is that we will do better as a business to embrace the future and sell off these traditional it. art paintings we will make more money there is more upside to be had if we move into digital versus keeping the picassos that we have today that's an insane statement right yes that's that's crazy i mean these it these is. are the, the 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 best collectors in the world on the traditional art side right and so they know the future is going to be pulling people in for an X copy viewing and a chromy squiggle viewing. And I'm, I'm talking about my own bags here. Let's name something that's not in my bag. So one of these, uh, is, it I mean, is that what we're talking about you're, today? You're, you're, so Kevin, you're actually bringing up a really interesting question, which is if you are MoMA and you are looking to get educated in this space and you are looking to start making your first digital asset acquisitions, like where do you look? How do you get educated? Right. What are those assets that make sense? And like, I, I know you share this view. I certainly have shared this view before in the past, but to me, a lot of what has been built in this industry leads back to those three first projects. It's CryptoPunks, it's Autoglyphs, and it's Chromie Squiggles. Every single project that exists today, you can trace the line back to those three projects in some way or shape. Uh, and if I'm one of these institutions, I'm starting from what actually helped build the foundation and the infrastructure around the crypto art industry, the NFT industry, and there's a number of one-of-one -one crypto artists as well that they're, I'm sure they're going to look at. The folks mm -hmm. like Beeple, the folks like Xcopy. Um, but in terms of what has really become a special part of the space as we've seen PFPs develop and generative art develop and some of like these major themes that have embedded themselves in, in the NFT space, uh, it's those first three projects that really helped create the modern NFT industry as it exists today. Uh, so it'll be yeah. it'll be fun. It'll be fun to kind of watch them work through this internally, educate themselves, and um, my my, under, my my gut tells me that they'll come to a very similar conclusion. You know what's crazy, Derek? Is like imagine. Okay, so in our world, you go out there and you're like, oh shit, Cosmo picked something up. Like you know, we've got these handful of people that, depending on who touches something and they pick it up, it's like it's a, a little bit of a blessing, right? Like oh wow, that mm. they endorse this in some sense, right? When the MoMA announces what they're going to be spending their cash on and what they're picking up for their like more permanent collection, like it's going to be mayhem. Shit. It's going to be yeah. total mayhem. Um, so we'll, I mean, we'll see what what ends up happening here. Um, but it, it's definitely a fun fun story, and much much sooner than I think any of us were really expecting. Yeah, I mean, that said, it's it's a compared to what they could do. 70 million is a, a, a relatively small check in this space of, yes. especially you start getting into some one-on-one -on -one beeples and X copies. You burn through that real quick, right? Yeah. You're not going to, that doesn't go too far, but, um, it's, it's going to be, I just, this is so much fun. I'm, I'm, I'm glad to see, you know, and props off to, props to the moment, like the fact that they're taking this big step in this direction, like it's whoever's on the board there that, that helped make this call. Like, like it's, it's the right move, right? It's, Why not diversify? Totally. And you know, what's hilarious is it kind of reminds me of like that typical innovators dilemma problem and like startups and disruption and disruptive technology. Um, before it used to be like just purely in the financial sector or the business sector of what it meant to like, you know, modify or modernize your business offerings in order to compete with the upstart, you know, startups that are coming out trying to disrupt your core business model, your core business function. This technology is going to leave uh, nothing unscathed, right? So mm -hmm. this idea that now we're talking about legacy art institutions 
that you know have the biggest brands in the world have to fend themselves off of this attention that's dwindling in their physical spaces for the attention that's growing in these digital ones and mm-hmm. being able to modernize just reminds me of like you know it this technology distributed te- ledger technology um trust minimized ledgers it's going to touch everything it's going to touch politics it's going to touch finance it's going to touch business it's going to touch art it's going to touch everything and everyone needs to be paying attention to this stuff I have to imagine this next major election cycle in the United States, we're going to see political camps embracing NFTs. Do you not think that's the case? I think it's, I think it's gotta be the case. Well, I think the, the, there will some of the savviest, I mean, we've seen it with the internet over the last, you know, let's call it 10 to 15 years, the importance of the internet in these, in these political elections. Um, I would say the, the campaigns that understand their web three strategy is going to give them a humongous structural advantage in both attention getting and also commercializing that attention for fundraising. I, I, uh, I think there's so much surface area in the world of politics for this stuff. And I think the, the campaigns that are the savviest to understanding how important internet is and how important Web3 is are going to totally land the jet on this stuff and just totally crush it out of the park. So yeah. uh, it's, we'll, we'll see what happens, but that's my bet uh, here coming up soon. Love it. Um, speaking of MoMA and the kind of display of these things, one of the things that I wanted to touch on today was kind of these, uh, all these digital frames that are out there. Like we've, we've talked about this a a bit. Um, you have one at your house. I have yet to pull the trigger on one. And I wanted to tell you, I was lucky enough to go by, um, Danvis today, D A N V A S and check out their displays. I know I sent you a text to me. I'm like, you dude, these other I got this stuff. text from Kevin a few hours ago. That was like, dude, Danvis frames, mind blown. You'll want one, which is just yeah. like, tell, talk to I, so I know nothing about okay. Danvis. What's so going on here, here? Here's, here's the issue that I have with digital frames. Like, so I, I bought one of those, um, Oh gosh, it's the Samsung one. What's the one? The frame, the frame. I right? own, I own one of these as well. Yeah. Yep. And I, I, I tried to get my NFTs on it. It was a nightmare. The software is horrific. It was like, but it, you know, it was a TV too. So that's fine. Yep. Whatever. <laughs> um, and, and then I tried, I tried one of these other ones that was like a few people had them. Um, the little, the little two by two foot, uh, squares that they were the first ones to come out where you had to use the, the software was, I think it was in, it was in, Chinese or, or I, it was like, you, you couldn't oh, understand it. I, like I couldn't read it. Yes. I yeah. It was like, name. but they were inexpensive. JDH had one. JDH yes. had one. That's why I bought mine is because JDH had one yep. and they were like $500. And I was like, Oh cool. Yes. I'll have like a little square. I never got mine to work. And I was like, Oh, and I can't return it. And I was just like, okay, this is a nightmare. Frames aren't ready yet. You know? And then, you know, I've, I've seen some of the other ones that have been out there and some of them I would look at and be like, ah, I see what you did there. You took a TV and turned it sideways. Like I, you know, I just look at the, the TV turned sideways. I'm totally. like, okay, you put a frame around it. You took a TV and turned it sideways, like clever, but it, it still looked like a TV turned sideways on my wall. Right. Yes. And I, I was like, ah, I don't want that one. Like I kind of want the square. And, and then I look at the price point and when I would see one of the TVs turned sideways and I, they were, you know, $4,000 or whatever, I would stop and immediately I think the psychology that happened behind the scenes was that I, I would anchor to the most recent Best Buy ad that I've seen in, in the paper, right? Or something around where it's mm. like, you know, $1,100 for a 55 inch TV or whatever, right? And I'm like, why am I spending four grand 
on something that is smaller, that's crappier, that probably has a shitty iOS app with it. Mm-hmm. You know, like I just don't want to pull the trigger yet. I was like, I was going to wait. Typically, you know, in technology, if you have enough friends that tell you something is cool, it is cool. And you just got to wait to hear from like four friends that are like, oh, this is the one to get, you know, and you're like, okay, cool. I'm in like, rather than do all the work yourself and kind of buy some yes. huge object that shows up at your house and it may or may not be good, you know? And so I've always been waiting on the sidelines, heard about these frames and what the Danvis frames and was like, you need to come. A friend of mine went to, to a show where they, where they were on display there and I was like, they were like, you don't understand. This is the frame you've been waiting for. And I went to the website and I checked it out and it was a square frame. And I was like, okay, that's cool. Um, But I I really, the website does not do it justice because when you go to Danvis and you see the website, it looks like a small little frame. These things are freaking massive. They're, They're really quite large. And they use this like micro LED technology and immediately I was just like blown away by how crisp it was. And it was the best looking frame I had ever seen. And I was like wow. seriously blown away. Like where I, I immediately thought to myself, I went in there and I walked in this room and there was like five or six of them on the wall. And I thought to myself, this could be in the MoMA. This could easily be in the MoMA. Like it is that impressive. And then I was like, okay, well, you know, how much do these run? They're f- $34,500. Good Lord. Let's They're go. <laughs> They're very expensive. So, but, but here's the funny thing. When they said that to me and I looked at it, I was like, that doesn't surprise me. And in, in, a, in a weird way, and don't get me wrong, people are listening to this, trust me, I know it's a shit ton of money. But when, in a, when you're talking about, and, and they mentioned this, this strategy to me as well, whereas like they're kind of doing the Tesla playbook. Where when Tesla first went out there, they went out with a hundred thousand dollar Roadster, and back then that was like a basically mm. a two hundred thousand dollar plus car for that price point, like you know fifteen years ago or whatever, right? And they went out with this Roadster, they went super high end, and that's the playbook that they're doing here. They're going super high end, museum quality, like massive. These things are massive. They're like they have one that's five feet by five feet square, and that is it's really big. Measure it out on your wall. It's it's really mind blowing, and. It was the first time where I thought to myself, like, that's what you put an X copy on. That's what you put something that's wow. really high value where, where your guests will walk into your house and they will not say, oh, that's a cheap frame that they just threw a, an NFT on. You'll, you'll be as shocked by the frame as you are about the artwork. Like, it, it, it really does it justice. And, and I was like, I can't wait for these to be $1,500, right? It's going to be some time because this is, this is like they're making these in very small run. They, they had this like um, uh, founder series where I think it's the first 100 frames that they produce. Um, they're doing a, another NFT collaboration where you get an NFT that goes with it. And, um, but I wanted to bring it to your attention and everyone else's attention. I know that this is not for everyone the way the first Tesla wasn't for everyone. But if you do have a high value... Um, collection and where it does make sense for you to own something like this, you're actually, if this company, you know, works and, and they, they do sell these out, it will lead to the production of less expensive displays down the road. I have to imagine um, that are going to be more affordable for everyone. Uh, I, but this, this you, you'll see, we're going to go down there. They told right. me if I send them three of your NFTs and I send them three of my NFTs, they'll put them up when we walk in. Amazing. And also they offer to do a, a proof, um, Moonbirds slash collective meetup there 
where we can all go and check them out in LA and uh, yeah, we'll all get to just like have some drinks so and hang awesome. out and see these. It's worth seeing even if you can't afford it. Like you'll, cause it, it's like, it's kind of one of those things where, you know, when you, you go at CES like a decade ago and they'd have like the bent roll, like foldable, uh, you know, frames are like, you're like, wow, you're folding an yes. LCD. And like, they're like, don't worry, it'll be out in 10 years. And you're like, okay, it's still cool to see, even though you can't get it today or you can't afford it. It, it, it's very, very awesome. But anyway, just wanted to bring the, put that on people's, the more serious collectors that are listening. Um, this is the first frame where I've seen that I've been really, really blown away by That said, there's some ni- other nice frames out there and you have one of them, don't you? What other frames are, are yeah. out there that you've seen? So, um, the stuff that I think is really cool right now is, um, I think token frame makes a very great frame with, with a, a beautiful output, uh, with the, this wood that goes around the frame itself in great resolution. Um, there's definitely some limitations like the rendering of art blocks, dynamic pieces is not possible with the existing software that exists, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, as a, someone who loves to show off art blocks pieces, um, would be great to have something like that out of the box. This has a GPU on it, by the way, so they can render a lot of the art blocks. They did a, um, um, a light of sun in real time on the wall for me that they were rendering and they're like, this is why we put a GPU in here. Cause we want to be able to do a lot of the art blocks. Amazing. Stuff. They said it's still, some of them are still challenging because some yep. of them are really computationally in, intense, yes. but they can do a lot of the art block stuff out of the, out that's the box, super cool. I know, um, the workaround with the Samsung frame, which I also have has been to basically use a Mac mini and power the, the, the output with the Mac mini and just like, you know, hide your Mac mini. Obviously you want these things to be integrated. You want it to be an experience. Um, but folks that are doing some heavy lifting, I know bright moments is one of them Art blocks and some of their physical spaces do the same thing. I know quantum is, is doing the same. Um, the way they bypass that is by kind of abstracting away the, the computational, uh, intensity with a, with a Mac mini and just making the screen be presented right in front of you. Often it's a Samsung uh, screen, which can look very cool and can actually render some of these complicated pieces. I will mm-hmm. say, um, you know, like it's still very patchy. Like we're putting these things together and, and bits and puzzles. And the solution that you're describing is actually where I think we're going. Um, and I think it's first customers will probably be folks like MoMA or LACMA or some of these high end galleries. Um, I do think that like this brings out a larger point. Uh, We had this event in Bright Moments Gallery, Collab Currency, last weekend. Thanks for stopping by, by the way, Kev. Yeah, it was great. Um, And I was, uh, we had this uh, donut truck uh, outside the events. Holy Grail. Holy Grail, dude. Shout out to Holy Grail. They make the best donuts that came from Hawaii. They they make them out of like this taro root. It's amazing. I'm not an investor. This is not a pitch, but man, do they make some good donuts. I'm, I'm an investor. Oh, okay. But yeah, they're, they're amazing. Yeah, they are. Incre- I, I incredible. didn't tell you to say that either. Okay. Yeah. He did not tell me to say that. I'm just a huge fan of these donuts, but we, we, we had them come out. We hired them to come out and, and help with the event. And I was getting a donut and this guy was walking by like one of the Venice community members and just struck up a conversation with him about NFTs and just trying to explain to him why NFTs. And he had all these great questions and he couldn't get past the fact that like he couldn't understand why these things were so special. Like everyone was showing them on their phones to him mm-hmm. and he just couldn't get past the fact that this thing could be valuable when it was like in your phone and there was this awkward moment where like people were showing him their NFTs on their phone and scrolling through them and saying, you know, this picture is worth a thousand dollars. This one's worth $4,000. This one's $800. And he's just like, this seems so corny that we're just showing each other these photos on our phone. It's really projects like the one you're describing, Kevin, mm-hmm. that's going to start to elevate the experience of what it means to own a digital object. Oh, and so no doubt. 
That was no the doubt. exact moment that I had today. When I walked in, I looked at the scenes and I was like, this is the first time I've seen it in an empty displayed in a way that by putting it in this frame, it felt yes. like it was worth more money. It felt and I'd never like seen that before. It, 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 it's gonna, like these are the things I'm very excited. I had the same moment um, at Artblocks' Samsung event in New York during NFT NYC, where this work was not meant to be displayed on a phone. You know, these NFTs are not meant to be, I mean, some of them are, but like many of them aren't meant to be, you know, looked at on like these tiny little screens that we're showing our friend on the bus or wherever it is we may be. And I know that if this uh, frame existed and had some amazing, it was rendering some amazing dynamic art blocks pieces. And this guy who I was talking to in front of the Holy Grail donut truck was in there seeing it, he would have had a completely different experience of understanding and trying to grok what an NFT was. So I am very excited for, 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 um, for the, the screens that you're describing, Kevin, and I'm very excited to see some more experimentation around hardware because uh, I think it's really going to take this industry to the next level. Bring your ETH, dude. You're going to have a hard time saying no when you see this display. <laughs> <laughs> to be continued. To be continued. So I will say one thing I want to add on here because I'm sure the token frames people will listen. They have been great partners to us at Proof. They did um, some displays for us at the various events. I want to thank them for that. And I did really like um, seeing what they, they have offered. I have yet to see the square one. Would you own the square one? I don't. I own, um, I own the... I, I can't remember exactly what size, but it's, it's, I think their largest option. It's in, um, it's beautiful. It's, it's actually still in my living room. It's when people, people can see it when they come in and out of the house. I get a lot of comments on it. Um, so I do love my, my, uh, my token frame. I just, there's a couple of things on the software side that I wish would improve. Yeah. I'm going to pick up one of these token frames cause they are, they're not 35, $34,000. They're, they're a lot more reasonable. And, um, yeah, I'm excited to see this because I did I did like what the, theirs was more of the, the kind of TV sideways thing, which actually, you know, Beeple's does a lot in this a, a aspect ratio. And there's some other artists that, that do that aspect ratio where it fits quite well. I think the majority of my stuff, actually, I have a couple X copies that are that size that would look really cool on. Um, but anyway, it's, it's exciting to see. I, I do want to try their software. I've yet to um, every time I've seen them, it's been just in passing and I've yet to mm. actually get one and play with it. Um, they're fun. Be, they're fun. Yeah. Yeah. We should do a, like a wire cutter that you and I co-author and we just get all the frames in Dude. and just like every year, just like update it and say, this is the one to that would by. be awesome. You know what I mean, that would be so much fun. I think, we uh, reach, the industry needs them. something like that. Yeah. Because there's, there's all these ones popping up all the time. And the question you always have is like, you know, I bought the Netgear one, right? And I was like, oh, yeah, Netgear. Like, they make ones. And it's horrible. It crashed all the time. Like, I was getting, like, blue screens of death on, like, my, like, like the old school, like, crashing with, like, artifacts yeah. on it and stuff. And I was just like, how is this? And, and it's too bad because I bought it largely based on the name, uh, name brand, which I would obviously known Netgear for, for many years, being a, a good maker of high-end networking equipment back in the day. But anyway. Yeah. Um, cool. All right. So, um Let's talk about some new drops and what's what's happening. There's one that you're excited about. Yeah, so there's one that um, that I've been tracking for a while. I so don't have a ton of information. Never met with the team. Haven't talked with them. This has been one that I've just been kind of tracking in passing for let's call it the last three to four months, maybe a bit longer at this point. Um, but there's a super rare artist called Dirty Robot, um, and he launched a project called The Art of Seasons, uh, Taos which was a 7,200 piece collection 
They were essentially all fragments of a single body of work. Um, and uh, the Tao's project, the, the Art of Seasons, was meant and articulated to seed a larger avatar PFP collection around this story that Dirty Robot was creating. Um, so he's creating the, the, the Tao's collection was really meant as like the first asset um, as part of like this larger story and universe that he was creating called Renga, R-E-N-G-A. Now, every uh, Tao's holder was airdropped a black box. I think this was maybe about two months ago or three months ago. And the rest of the black boxes were raffled off to the community, which led to a total of 10,000 black boxes. And you can still search for those black boxes. I'll get to that in a second. And during this time, while the black boxes were being distributed, um, the Renga account, the Twitter account, wasn't really posting anything. The only thing that they posted was this story. It was a comic strip. They would launch it every couple of days or every week that told the story of a boy in this universe, the Renga universe, who came across these weird black boxes in the story. And these are just, you know, black and white comic that was being created by Dirty Robot. Um, until it got to the point where these black boxes started to shapeshift and morph and out would come a character. And at that same point, every Renga black box holder was given the opportunity to open their box, burn it, and reveal a character and mint this character as part of the universe of, of, um, of Renga. And so that just happened about a week and a half ago, I believe. Um, and since then, um, you know, it's been kind of a slow burn. People have been burning their boxes. Over the last couple of days, and I started picking up again, uh, picking up with the project again as this was all kind of coming to a head, about 7,000 black boxes have been burned for a character in this universe, and there's about 3,000 black boxes left that have yet to be burned and could remain unburned. It's just kind of a fun deflationary dynamic moving forward about like these unrevealed characters. And um, still, not a ton of, has been posted about what is articulated for this universe, um, other than these comic strips and um, some information on on the platform, so this is one that's kind of interesting. I'm keeping my eye on it. Um, you know, um, your team has uh, some of the data folks on your team have started writing a little bit about it over the last couple of days. So this is one I'm keeping an eye on and and seeing how it unfolds. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, it's been one of the hottest trending projects. I think that's why you know part of the reason why we 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 picked it up and started writing about it. Um, isn't it at the top in the last 24 hours? Or I know it's, yeah, it's, it's number one right now in the last 24 hours. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens here. I obviously don't know anything other than what I've just described. I don't know the team behind this. Um, I've tried reaching out to them a few times, haven't heard back. Uh, I'd love to learn more about where this thing is going. But um, in terms of the visuals themselves, I think Dirty Robot is a total known qual uh, quantity. He puts out amazing work. I think this thing is rich with storytelling and narrative and visual interest. And so this has been one I've been excited to collect. I'm curious when you think about this approach to building an NFT collection, a project, uh, one of the things I was quite jealous of when Goblin Town went is they said like, no, no discord, right? Weren't they the first to mm. be like, no, discord? I think they were one of the like first. That. I think they were. Yeah. So what are, what are your thoughts on, on projects like this where they're just like, you don't know who the founders are these days. It's like, you know, um, I guess less so about whether the founders are anonymous or not, or, or more like how they engage the community. Like wh when you're, when you're talking to a new project or a new creator, what do you advise? Do you say go in heavy on the community side? Do you say you have a discord. Is that still the norm these days? Yeah, so there's so many approaches to answer this question. A lot of it, too, has to do with like the team skill set. 
um, like some teams are just so equipped to be able to have that two-way conversation with their mm. asset holders and just some aren't whereas some are very good at like they're masters of storytelling and they're masters of suspense and they treat it very much like a Hollywood production in that way that builds over time um, and they're just they're very good at that and so leaning into those design principles is actually very instructive for the type of community that they're trying to build you know, I re it reminds me of this com the conversation we were having a few episodes back where we were talking about um, XCopy. And you, you told me that you've reached out to XCopy a bunch and he's just like, he, she, they, they're just not very, uh, they don't really talk to you. They don't really talk to anyone. They're just doing their yeah. own thing. And like, there's this whole intrigue and mystery around XCopy as an artist. They are just doing their own thing. And nobody really knows what the hell is going on. Um, I think that's fascinating. I'm going to be so pissed if you're, if you're ex-copy, I'm going to be so pissed. <laughs> I, I can guarantee I'm not I'm going ex. To, <laughs> that would be amazing. Because I'm going to, I, I, in theory, I'm supposed to grab a, a, a pint in, a, a, in London. It would just be so, I'd be so happy if you're sitting across. How awesome would that be if I just showed out. up, dude? That would be <laughs> yeah. awesome. Um, but, the, but I guess like the, 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 the awesome thing is like, that is an amazing way to build a brand, an amazing way to build community, an amazing mm -hmm. way to like, have this this emotional resonance without actually talking to your end users, your customers, your consumers, your collectors. Um, so it's really a deconstruction of like what they're trying to achieve, what they're good at, their skill set, their you know what like they're optimizing for, and really trying to configure those ingredients in the right way for that exact creator. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense because it, you're right that everyone has a different comfort level. I've met some really creative artists that. Well, it, it's, it's, it's challenging because the more I read books like the $12 million shark or, you know, the, the, the price yes. of everything, watch the documentary, the more you realize it feels like this world, especially moving to social media, that artists also have to wear the hat of mm. being this kind of entrepreneur slash cheerleader slash marketer, yes. you know, and you're lucky if you could do it like X copy where it's a little bit of mystery around it that, that creates that oomph rather than yes. having to go out there and, and be a, a front person. Right. So totally. Um, but I, I've met some artists that, that are just, they're more shy people mm. where it's like, that's not in their DNA naturally to be that person. Yeah. So, you know, or not in their DNA to, to manage a discord or nor, nor do they want to, you know? Yeah. So it's, it's tricky. It is definitely tricky. And that's nothing to say that um, Dirty Robot, Renga, they've got the approach figured out. I don't know enough about this project yet to say that um, like they've got this whole thing sorted. This is mm -hmm. one I would put in the er very early bucket. I'm tracking it. I'm keeping an eye on it. There seems to be a community forming around it. Um, volumes are actually flowing in. And so um, it, it feels like there's some cool stuff happening here, but I'm not totally sure the strength or the veracity of this team so this is one that's still a question mark for me but definitely enough interesting things happening here um to keep mm -hmm. an eye on when you are browsing i'm assuming you you look at the open sea kind of rankings every few days is that fair yep. to say i check them out i okay. see what yeah i like to see what's going on out there yeah same and i would say you know ev almost every day when i refresh there's probably two or three projects where i'm just like i've never heard of this before right yes just like this is new. What is this? Right. Um, when you see more 10 K projects that are coming out there and I had this feeling even before we launched Moonbirds, where I was like, you know, I was a little nervous, like, okay, a lot of people have done this. Like, 
does this need to be done again? And then we started coming up with some ideas around rewards, around attributes and nesting and some things that I, I was comfortable in saying, okay, this is new and distinct enough to where it, it warrants us going after and launching this. Um, when you see these new projects that, you know, shoot into the top 20 or top 10 or whatever it may be, and you click through and it's another character, you know, holding mm. a piece of pizza in the mouth or whatever it may be. Does that, is that starting to weigh on you as a collector? Like, are you going to, are you going to keep buying PFPs? So, um, I would say 99.9% of the stuff that I see right now is just not that interesting. Um, there's no innovation at the art level. There's no innovation at the community formation level. There's no innovation, um, across the board. It takes something special. I think there needs to be some point of view, some perspective, some differentiator as it's because like, we're just, there's, we're sat, we're oversaturated with this idea of, um, PFPs, like there's just too many of them. They're all launching. They're all trying to achieve the same, you know, networked asset effect, community building effect. And unless there's a specific point of view or something interesting or dynamic about these things, they're just like not, my attention is just going to move elsewhere. And I suspect that's how many others feel too. Now that's not to say that there couldn't be stuff that's special that I just missed, but the thing that I most look for right now is like opinion and perspective and point of view and, and some differentiating factor. And so, um, I would say 99% of the stuff that's being actively traded on any given day, it's, it's an open isn't the best, you know, funnel for that type of discovery. But if there's something that catches my eye there, I'll pop over and see how they're handling social, how they're handling communications, how they've articulated the, the thing that they're trying to build, um, in their public, you know, facing communications and just do a little bit more research there. But, um, often I'm just not finding a ton of really interesting surface area as it relates to like the 10 K PFP project. Now, um, I do think that we will continue to see them roll out. And I do think that there will emerge a number of winners that come out of that format. Um, mostly because it's such an amazing way to network a community is by giving them assets to own and that communication between creator and community to start to form in really interesting ways. And as we find more playbooks to surface the threads between creator and collector and collector and other collector and some of like the gamification that you can do, Kevin, and you are doing with Moonbirds, but that others are doing as we start to dial in these playbooks, um, you know, I, I expect the format to continue to be used and optimized and, yeah. and, um, and grow in really interesting directions. Yeah. I, I imagine that, um, what we'll see as applied to projects that are profile photo projects is probably going to be modifications of nouns, modifications of, of other drop mechanics that we'll be able to point to and be, you know, while it's like, there's, there's, there's these playbooks that happen. And if the playbook is successful enough, you see a bunch of people use the same yes, playbook and they totally. may do little tiny tweaks and spins and things like that. And then the playbook gets exhausted and yes. then it's on to the next thing. Right. So I have to imagine there is dozens of these waiting to be discovered in terms mm. of some really unique yes. ways to leverage uh, blockchain tech to pull things off that we just haven't thought of yet. Um, I'm excited to kick uh, uh, some experiment in that genre and that we want to try things that uh, when we think about the future of Moonbirds or our other related projects, it's like, let's not just take what nouns has done or take what board apes has done, but let's, um, 
see if there's there's other avenues to explore um, that may 100%. be improvement upon. But, you know, there's there's certainly other things that are, are going to be exciting to, to play with here. I totally agree. And um, it's we're all standing on each other's shoulders. We're just trying to figure out what's working. We're all coming to you know quick consensus on, yes, this works or yes, this doesn't work or yes, this should be modified or yes, we can bundle this part and that part, but maybe not that part. And the right. projects that have that plasticity and how they're using yes. these networked assets, those are the ones that are going to actually thrive. That's why, honestly, I was really blown away by when we had Frank from D gods on the show, you know, it's like his ability to experiment and just not give a shit and just yeah. kind of like go all in. It's a, it's, it's a little, he's a, a couple of degrees more degen than, than I would call myself. <laughs> but you know, he said, he's like, Hey, I loved what you did with, with the nesting. I'm going to steal some of that. I'm like, awesome. Like go do something great with it. And like, I'll steal the next thing that you come up with and modify it and move yes. it forward. And like, I think that's how we get to some really creative things here is, is by taking best practices and, and kind of moving them forward. Right. Like, and, and, and trying out new things. Yes. It's, it's like the way that I, uh, I think about my childhood too. Like certain things dad was really good at other things I'm going to leave behind. Right. And you take those things that were passed <laughs> on to you and you this, modify those this things show is going forward. to new places, dude. This is a This is now becoming a counseling episode, which I love. Let's, yeah. let's go there, dude. I mean, I, you know what I mean? It's, it's, no, it's I to totally agree. life, right? I totally like, agree. It's also like, um, I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with all this stuff, like the Steve Blank style of entrepreneurship, lean startup style, where it's like mm-hmm. um, to build like something of lasting value that really resonates with end users. A lot of, you know, the early work with startups and configuring them is running as many experiments as possible, getting these micro hits of feedback. And then for the stuff that really seems to resonate, running very quickly in that direction and putting resources towards it. But it's these little experiments, these little pieces of feedback, these little, you know, pings from the blind bat out into the darkness where you're getting feedback back when those are like, that's where the real magic is happening. It's like trying to figure out exactly all of the right things to do based on running as many things as possible consecutively, simultaneously. Um, and, and those are the projects that seem to figure out exactly which products to incorporate and what they're trying to build. Yeah. The way I think of it is like, as an entrepreneur, you're out there and you're like, you're like almost got this, like the, the stone with the flint and you're like striking against mm. the stone in a bunch of different directions. And sometimes you'll get some sparks. Sometimes you'll get a little bit of smoke and then sometimes there's like full on fire. And when there's full on fire, you want to pour fuel on the fire to like go and ramp things up and like double down and see if you can really get this to go. The difficult part is having the courage to pour water on the fire when it's not working and just don't continue to go down that avenue, even though you had an early spark that turned into something that was interesting, but it may not be where you want to go long term because that's the other side of it where you just spend all these cycles working on something that you thought was a good idea. And because you've invested so much time and emotion Mm. and everything else into it, you're not willing to abandon that. Right. So very well said. it's a lot to, lot to learn. Uh, still learning. Anyway, yep. um, awesome. Well, this has been great. We're almost coming up on an hour right now. Fun little hangout. I'm glad we just did this little solo one. It was uh, Dude, fun to chat. Always a blast. Can't wait for the next one. We've got, um, we've got some pretty dope guests that you and I have been talking about bringing onto the show. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Thank you, Derek. Have a good weekend, and uh, we'll talk soon. All right, sir. Chat soon, buddy. All right, that is it for this episode. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you would like to help us out, head on over to proof.xyz and click on the reviews button at the very top and leave us a five-star review. Thanks so much. Take care.